that road ends in hell. The straight gate is the only gate to life. The narrow way is the only one which conducts to heaven. Few indeed find it. Few have the least inclination for it. But that very fact ought only to provide an additional incentive to my giving all diligence to enter therein. In the verses which are now to be before us, Christ defined and described the way of salvation. Though we sorrowfully admit that modern evangelists, question mark, rarely expound it. What we shall now endeavor to set forth is very different from what most have been taught, but you reject it at your peril. We repeat that in the passage we are about to consider, he who was truth incarnate made known the only way of escaping perdition and securing heaven, namely, by entering the straight gate and treading the narrow way. Number one, the straight gate. The Greek word for straight signifies restrained or narrow, and is so rendered in the revised version. Now a gate serves two purposes. It lets in and it shuts out. All who enter this narrow gate gain admittance to that way which leadeth unto life. But all who enter not by this narrow gate are eternally barred from God's presence. The second use of this gate is solemnly illustrated at the close of the parable of the virgins. There, our Lord pictures the foolish ones as being without the necessary oil, the work of the Spirit in the heart. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came and the door was shut. Matthew 25:10. And though they then besought him to open it to them, he answered, I know you not. What is denoted by this figure of the narrow gate? We believe the reference is to the searching and solemn teaching of him who is truth incarnate. It is only as the heart bows to the righteousness of God's claims and demands upon us as set forth by His Son that any soul can enter that path which alone leads to Him. While the heart is rebellious against Him, there can be no approach to Him. For can two walk together except they be agreed? It is true blessedly and gloriously true that Christ himself is the door, John 10, 9, and he is so in a threefold way according to the three principal functions of his mediatorial office. He is the door into God's presence as the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now it is only 
as Christ is truly received as God's authoritative prophet, only as his holy teachings are really accepted by a contrite heart, that anyone is prepared to savingly welcome him as priest. Christ is the way and the truth before he is the life. John 14.6 As he is first king of righteousness and after that also king of peace. Hebrews 7.2 In other words, his cleansing blood is only available for those who are willing to throw down the weapons of their warfare against God and surrender themselves to His holy rule. The wicked must forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, if he is to be pardoned by God. Isaiah 55, 7 And this is only another way of saying that Christ must be received as prophet before He is embraced as priest. Why is this gate a narrow one? For at least three reasons. First, because of sin. The wicked shall be turned into hell. All nations that forget God. Psalm 9.17 The gate of heaven is far too narrow to admit such characters. The New Testament plainly affirms the same fact. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Ephesians 5, 5 5-7 Second, because of the law. There are two principal errors about the law, and I know not which is the more dangerous and disastrous. That one can earn heaven by obeying it, that one may enter heaven without that personal and practical godliness which the law requires. Follow peace with all, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 Where there is not this personal conformity to the will of God, the strong hand of the law will close the door of heaven. Third, because none can take the world along with him. This gate is far too narrow to admit those who love the world. What is meant by entering this narrow gate? First, the acceptance of those teachings of truth, of duty, of happiness, which were unfolded by Christ, the honest, an actual receiving into the heart of his holy, searching, flesh-withering instructions. Such acceptance is here figuratively represented as a person with great difficulty forcing his way through a circumscribed entrance. I say with great difficulty 
for Christ's precepts and commandments are, to the last degree, unpalatable to an unrenewed heart and cannot be willingly and gladly received without a rigid denial of self and relinquishment of sinful pleasures, pursuits, and interests. Christ has plainly warned us that it is impossible for a man to serve two masters. Self must be repudiated and Christ received as the Lord. Colossians 2.6 Or he will not save us. What is meant by entering this narrow gate? Second, a deliberate abandoning of the broad road or the flesh-pleasing mode of life. Until this has been done, there is no salvation possible for any sinner. Christ himself taught this plainly in Luke 15. The prodigal must leave the far country before he could journey to the Father's house. The same pointed truth is taught again in James 4, 8-10. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep, that your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Ah, my friend, to really and actually enter this narrow gate is no easy matter. For that reason the Lord bade the people, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. John 6.27 Those words do not picture salvation as a thing of simple and easy attainment. Ponder also Christ's emphatic exhortation in Luke 13.24 Strive to enter in at the straight gate. That he should utter such a word clearly implies the great idleness and sloth which characterizes nominal professors as it also intimates there are formidable difficulties and obstacles to be overcome. Let it be carefully noted that the Greek word for strive in Luke 13.24 is the same one that is used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 and everyone that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things and is also rendered laboring fervently in Colossians 4.12 and fight in 1 Timothy 6.12. And how are we to strive so as to enter the narrow gate? The general answer is lawfully, 2 Timothy 2.5. But to particularize, we are to strive by prayer and supplication diligently seeking deliverance from those things which would bar our entrance. We are to earnestly cry to Christ for help from those foes which are seeking to overcome us. We are to come constantly to the throne of grace that we may there find grace to help us repudiate and turn away with loathing 
from everything which is abhorred by God, even though it involves our cutting off of a right hand and plucking out of a right eye, and grace to help us do those things which he has commanded. We must be temperate in all things, especially those things which the flesh craves and the world loves. But why is such striving necessary? First, because Satan is striving to destroy thy soul. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 Therefore must he be resisted, steadfast in the faith. Second, because natural appetites are striving to destroy thee. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 Third, because the whole world is arrayed against thee, and if it cannot burn, it will seek to turn thee by alluring promises, Delilah like guiles, fatal enticements. Unless you overcome the world, the world will overcome you to the eternal destruction of thy soul. From what has been before us, we may plainly discover why it is that the vast majority of our fellow men and women, yea, and of professing Christians also, will fail to reach heaven. It is because they prefer sin to holiness, indulging the lust of the flesh to walking according to the Scriptures, self to Christ, the world to God. It is as the Lord Jesus declared, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3.19 Men refuse to deny self, abandon their idols, and submit to Christ as Lord. And without this, none can take the first step toward heaven. Number two, the narrow way. Just as entering the narrow gate signifies the heart's acceptance of Christ's holy teaching, so to walk along the narrow way means for the heart and life to be constantly regulated thereby. Walking along the narrow way denotes a steady perseverance in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus, overcoming all opposition, rejecting every temptation to forsake the path of fidelity to Him. It is called the narrow way because all self-pleasing and self-seeking is shut out. In Genesis 18:19, it is called the way of the Lord. In Exodus 13.21 and 32.8 The Way In 1 Samuel 12.22 The Good and Right Way In Psalm 25.9 His Way In Proverbs 4.11 The Way of Wisdom In Proverbs 8.20 The Way of Righteousness In Proverbs 10.17 The Way of Life in Jeremiah 25.8, the way of holiness. In Jeremiah 6.16, the good way. 
In 2 Peter 2, 2, the way of truth. In 2 Peter 2.15, the right way. The narrow way must be followed no matter how much it may militate against my worldly interests. It is right here that the testing point is reached. It is much easier unto the natural man and far pleasanter to indulge the flesh and follow our worldly propensities. The broad road where the flesh is allowed liberty under the pretense of the Christians not being under the law is easy, smooth and attractive, but it ends in destruction. Though the narrow way leads to life, only few tread it. Multitudes make a profession and claim to be saved but their lives give no evidence that they are strangers and pilgrims here with their treasures elsewhere. They are afraid of being thought narrow and peculiar, strict and puritanic. Satan has deceived them. They imagine that they can get to heaven by an easier route than by denying self, taking up their cross daily and following Christ. There are multitudes of religionists who are attempting to combine the two ways, making the best of both worlds and serving two masters. They wish to gratify self in time and enjoy the happiness of heaven in eternity. Crowds of nominal Christians are deluding themselves into believing that they can do so but they are terribly deceived. A profession which is not verified by mortifying the deeds of the body and the power of the Spirit, Romans 8.13, is vain. A faith which is not evidenced by complete submission to Christ is only the faith of demons. A love which does not keep Christ's commandments is an imposition, John 14.23. A claim to being a Christian where there is no real yieldedness to the will of God is daring presumption. The reason why so few will enter life is because the multitudes are not seeking it in the way of God's appointing. None seek it aright save those who pass through the narrow gate, and who, despite many discouragements and falls, continue to press forward along the narrow way. Now notice carefully the very next thing which immediately follows our Lord's reference to the two ways in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they are ravening wolves, Matthew 7.15. Why does this come in next? Who are the false prophets against which a serious soul needs to be on his guard? They are those who teach that heaven may be reached without treading the narrow way. They are those who loudly insist 
that eternal life may be obtained on much easier terms. They come in sheep's clothing. They appear to undiscerning souls to exalt Christ, to emphasize His precious blood, to magnify God's grace. But they do not insist upon repentance. They fail to tell their hearers that nothing but a broken heart which hates sin can truly believe in Christ. They declare not that a saving faith is a living one which purifies the heart. Acts 15.9 And overcomes the world. 1 John 5.4 These false prophets are known by their fruits, the primary reference being to their converts, the fruits of their fleshly labors. Their converts are on the broad road, which is not the path of open wickedness and vice, but of a religion which pleases the flesh. It is that way which seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 Those who are on this broad road, this way which seemeth right to so many, have a head knowledge of the truth, but they walk not in it. The narrow way is bounded by the commandments and precepts of Scripture. The broad road is that path which has broken out beyond the bounds of Scripture. Titus 2, 12 and 13 supplies the test as to which way we are in. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Ere closing, let us anticipate and seek to remove an objection. Probably many of you are saying, I thought Christ was the way to the Father, John 14.6. So he is. But how? First, in that he has removed every legal obstacle and thereby opened a way to heaven for his people. Second, in that he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. The mere opening of a door does not give me entrance into a house. I must tread the path leading to it and mount the steps. Christ has, by his life of unreserved obedience to God, shown us the way which leads to heaven. When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him. John 10.4 Third, in that he is willing and ready to bestow grace and strength to walk therein. Christ did not come here and die in order to make it unnecessary for me to please and obey God. No, indeed, He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world. Galatians 1.4 Who gave himself for us, 
that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 Christ came here to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 And if you are not now delivered from the power of sin, from the deceptions of Satan, from the love of the world and from the pleasing of self, then you are not saved. May it please the God of all grace to add his blessing. Note, this address was delivered by the editor in Glenolden, a suburb of Philadelphia, on September the 28th, 1931. Study number seven, the ordained lamp. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed, Psalm 132.17. The first part of this psalm records a series of prayer petitions. From verse 11 to the close are a number of great and precious promises relating to David and his family in the type but mainly and ultimately to Christ and his New Testament church in the antitype. Let the hearer constantly bear in mind this important principle and fact, namely, that everything in the Old Testament scriptures typified or represented gospel or eternal realities. First, God here promises to fix his residence in the church, verses 13 and 14, then to bless the provision he makes for her, verse 15, to give her faithful and successful ministers, verse 16, that however low the interests of Christ on earth may be brought, even though like himself it may appear a root in a dry place, Yet like a tree well planted in the ground, but sore lopped and hacked by man and Satan, it will sprout again. Verse 16 In our present verse, three things are before us. First, the designation which is given unto the Savior of sinners by the Father. He calls him mine anointed, the despised and rejected of men, Though an unbelieving world see no form nor comeliness in him, God owns him as the prophet, priest, and king of his church. Compare Psalm 89, 20 and 21. Second, the chief agency of God's ordering for the manifestation of Christ to a lost world. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. This is the gospel. The use of a lamp is to give light to people in the darkness of the night. So the proclamation of Christ's glorious person, offices, and work is a light shining in a dark place until the day of glory dawns. Third, the sovereign authority by which this gospel lamp is lighted and carried through this dark world. It is ordained of God 
It is by divine command that his servants preach and spread the light of the gospel. Compare Mark 16, 15, and 20. This gospel lamp was first set up in the purpose of God from eternity in the Council of Peace, Zechariah 6.13, and compare Proverbs 8.22, and 31, when the whole plan of salvation through Christ was laid. Second, this lamp was first lighted in this lower world immediately after the fall in paradise, when a dark and dismal night of woe had spread itself over our first parents, a gleam of hope, then shone out through the promise of Genesis 3.15. Third, the lamp of the gospel shone prophetically, Galatians 3.8, and typically, Hebrews 4.2, during all the Old Testament period. It shone, as it were, through a veil. Four, after the coming of Christ in the flesh, and his resurrection and ascension into heaven, the lamp of gospel light was brightened, and its blessed rays were more widely diffused. But even then, and now, according to the sovereign pleasure of God, to show how much God is concerned about this lamp of the everlasting gospel, we mention several things which he had ordained concerning it. Number one, God has appointed those places and parts of the world where the gospel lamp shall be set up and shine. The wind bloweth where it listeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. John 3, 8 It was so in Old Testament times. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Psalm 147, 19 and 20. It was so when Christ was upon earth. To his apostles he said, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, 5, and 6. It was so after his ascension. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the regions of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit suffered them not. Acts 16, 6, and 7. That which regulates God in his providential dealings concerning the gospel, opening doors or shutting them, sending one of his ministers to a place or withdrawing him, is whether or no there be some of those for whom Christ died in that particular locality. For the sheep shall hear his voice, John 10:16, where there is no gospel preaching for a protracted period, it is an indication that none of God's elect are there. Also, I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvests. 
And I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. Amos 4.7 So it is spiritually, and for the reason thus given. Number 2 God has appointed how long the gospel lamp shall remain in each place before it be sent to another part of the earth. He ordered how long it should shine among the Jews, namely, until Christ came. He ordained how long it should shine in each of the seven churches in Asia before he came and removed his candlestick. So he has decreed where and when the gospel shall continue in this country. There is probably more real gospel preaching in China today than there is in the United States of America. Many a church which was once a bright testimony for Christ is so no longer, nor does it know that Ichabog, the glory is departed, has been written over it. Many a town which formerly was blessed with the ministry of a true servant of God is now left desolate. Number three, God has appointed which persons should be converted and edified under the gospel when he sends it to any nation or congregation. The Most High has not left it to the caprice of his servants nor to the whims of their hearers what measure of success the proclamation of his truth shall enjoy. No, the Lord holds in his own right hand the instruments which he employs, Revelation 1.16, and causes his word to be either a savor of death unto death or a savor of life unto life. Paul was bidden by the Lord to remain at Corinth, for, said he, I have much people in this city, Acts 18.10. On the other hand, God suffered him not to go into Bithynia, Acts 16.7 When a servant of God settles in a new place, he knows not who are the particular ones that he has been ordained a blessing unto. His business is to preach the word to all who will hear him, leaving it with the Spirit to make whatever application he pleases. The election of grace shall obtain eternal life. The rest will be blinded. Romans 11.7 Some will prove to be wayside hearers, others stony ground hearers, and yet others thorny ground hearers. Only a few will give evidence that they are good ground hearers. But that is all in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. Nor should we desire it to be otherwise. God is working out His own eternal purpose and absolute subjection to the Master's will is what is required of servants. A beam of the gospel lamp will shine into one heart when many others are left in nature's darkness. Why was I made to hear His voice and enter while there's room? While others make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, was the same love that spread the feast which sweetly forced me in. 
else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. Number four. God has ordained by what instrument or minister the gospel lamp shall be brought unto a people or particular person. Paul was ordained for the Gentiles, Peter for the Jews. But every one of Christ's servants is guided by the hand of the Sovereign Lord to labor in this or that or the other part of His vineyard. The stars are held in His right hand, Revelation 1.16, and He causes them to shine in this or that orb of His church. And when He pleases, He removes them from one place to another in His kingdom, where He has other work for them. And when He takes them to heaven... Then they that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars for ever and ever. Daniel 12.3 It is not by chance or good luck, horrible expression for any child of God to use, that anyone is privileged to sit under the ministry of a man of God to whom the Spirit blesses such to his conversion. No, when God works, He works at both ends of the line, making all things work together for good unto His own. It was sovereign grace which selected the Lord of glory to be the one who should preach the word of life to the Samaritan adulteress. John 4. It was sovereign grace which appointed Philip to be the Spirit's mouthpiece to the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8. It was sovereign grace which determined that Peter should give forth the word of salvation to Cornelius and his household. Acts 10. Cornelius was a Roman, and Paul, already then saved, was the apostle unto the Gentiles. Yet Peter, the apostle to the circumcision, was the one sent to him. Number 5. God has ordained the measure of fruit which each servant of his shall reap from his labors. The degree of success which each gospel lamp-bearer shall have. He has determined what number of souls shall be edified and which shall be hardened by his light. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. 1 Corinthians 3.7 It is not always the most gifted ministers nor the most godly who are the most successful. So far as we can ascertain from the gospel records, fewer souls were saved under the preaching of Christ himself than under Peter's on the day of Pentecost. Why? Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Matthew 11.26 must be the answer. Arthur Pink This concludes the January Studies. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.